Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast series, and I'm your host, Maddie Gobo, the events manager here at Skylight Books in Los Angeles. Um, as we're recording today, uh, the store is actually closed. We just had our second COVID positive case on staff um, in a month, which is scary and awful. Um, fortunately, the the staffer who tested positive is um, asymptomatic so far and everybody else is getting tested and uh, we're closing the store for two weeks, but it's just um, a good opportunity to reflect on uh, all of the stuff we've been through this year um, as a country, as a city, as a staff of booksellers <laughs> trying to make it. Um, and so we're, we're really glad that we can kind of keep our work going, even though the store is closed with, uh, with fantastic podcast conversations and virtual events on Crowdcast. You know, um, even though the books are not accessible at this moment in time, the ideas and the authors and the stories always are. Um, so, you know, hang in there. We'll be back soon. Um, and today we are going to have a wonderful conversation with two great poets. Um, so I just wanted to once again plug our virtual events over on Crowdcast. If you haven't already followed our Crowdcast page, it's crowdcast.io slash skylightbooks. Uh, and um, we've got so much good stuff coming up for February. Honestly, too much. Um, but <laughs> I'm really excited about all of it. And I hope to see you there. All right, so today we are going to be talking about the new poetry collection, Tigers, by Kim Young. It's out from Pank Books, um, and she's going to be in conversation with Sandra Hunter. So I'll say a little bit about the book. Tigers is an exploration of a series of multi-generational landscapes of the feminine female adolescence, womanhood, motherhood, and personal revelation. Where the traditional coming of age story moves from innocence to experience, Tigers moves through the excavation of trauma, addiction, recovery, adolescence, parenthood, and punk rock. From the ignorance and misunderstanding of a youth's misbegotten toughness into a turning inward toward tenderness and resilience. Toward, in essence, what it really takes to be mature, tough, and tigerly. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to throw that in. Um, <laughs> all right, so let me tell you a bit more about our guests today, and then we will bring them on, and we're going to have a reading and a conversation. All right, so Kim Young is the author of Tigers, which you just heard about, and Night Radio, which was the winner of the 2011 Agha Shaheed Ali Poetry Prize, um, and also finalist for the 2014 Kate Tufts Discovery Award, 
She's also the author of the chapbook Divided Highway and the founding editor of Chaparral, an online journal featuring poetry from Southern California. Hey, that's where we are. And her poems and essays have appeared in the Cincinnati Review, Los Angeles Review of Books, Triquarterly, Pool, and elsewhere. She lives in Los Angeles with her family. Sandra Hunter's stories have won the 2018 Lorian Hemingway Short Story Competition, 2017 Leapfrog Press Fiction Award, and the 2016 Gold Line Press Chapbook Prize. She is a 2018 Hawthorndon Fellow and the 2017 Charlotte, Charlotte Sheedy Fellow at the McDowell Colony. Her books include the story collection Chip Tripwires, the chapbook Small Change, and Losing Touch, a novel. So I misspoke at the beginning. We have a poet and a fiction writer for variety's <laughs> sake. Um, Kim and Sandra, welcome to the podcast. I'm so happy to have you. Thanks Thank very you much. Too. We're so happy to be here. <laughs> yeah. All right. So um, I just wanted to kind of situate our listeners in space and time here. So could you tell us first where you are in the world, um, like location-wise, and then also perhaps like in your house? <laughs> you want to go ahead, Sandra, or you want me to start? Oh, off? yeah. Uh, so, um, yeah, I'm in. I'm coming in from Simi Valley in Ventura, um, and I'm in my office. I'm lucky enough to have an actual space where I can put all my stuff. So, yeah. Does it have a door that closes? That's it does not have a door that closes. <laughs> and I've noticed recently, I get really jumpy if I hear my partner walking around and I'm just you know really tense like I shouldn't be doing something <laughs> so I can't wait you know we're, we're going to be moving this year so I'm hope I'm looking forward to having a, an office that has a door and a yes. padlock you know, <laughs> and an inner iron door that I can sort of you know do one of those Star Trek things that can just go shoo, <laughs> I love that for you yeah then what about you yeah. where are you right now well, I'm in Northeast Los Angeles in Glassell Park, um, and we, this summer, my husband and I are both teachers, um, so we were able to get one of those little SoCal sheds and build it in our backyard, and, and now we have a little space, so when our three-year-old three is, you know, launching himself against the door and pounding to get in, you know, we're actually, <laughs> like, away from the house, there's, there's a gate, and, um, it's yeah, it makes teaching so much easier to have. Oh, I thought you were actually going to put put him in there, put him in the <laughs> yeah, right. just lock him in the shed and go away. <laughs> we've we've talked about variations on that. Yes, <laughs> like Jeff and I just moving out here. Yeah, You'll be fine. You're yeah. tigers now. They will. <laughs> I mean, it's really the return of the mother-in-law house, right? Like we all yeah. want to be sort of like in our own space, away from everything, <laughs> so no. we can focus. It's going to um, be so weird when this, you know, when Touchwood lockdown finally ends, yeah, and how people will start to not connect with each other even more badly than we did before, mm. because now we've got the excuse of having a year of quarantine, you know, so. We we don't know how to do that. I'm seeing it in my students. Are you seeing it in yours, Kim? Where they just don't want to turn on video and they're they're they like, yeah. Or, I, they, or they get desperate. I, I feel like they're eager. They keep telling me they want to come back and do a physical classroom. But it will be interesting to see how many people are willing to put on hard pants and <laughs> get back in the world. You know? <laughs> Yeah. I, I love that we're all agreed to call jeans hard pants now. Like that is, <laughs> they're just too hard. I can't do it. They are. They're challenging. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, um, I'm very glad that we have the two of you here today. Um, and you have both actually been, you've known each other a long time um, and you've been working kind of in conversation for a long time. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about how you met and uh, sort of this years long conversation you've been having? Can I start, Sandra? Um, so Sandra and I met in, at a yoga studio when my firstborn was just born. She, she's 10 now. And um, it was the kind of thing where we kind of, I don't know if we knew that, maybe we knew that we'd both taught at more part, we taught at the yeah. same college and we had connections because my husband teaches there full time. Um, but I, you know, Sandra was this, when you have your first child, it's a time of sort of profound transformation, right? I identity is being, you know, um, you're, you're forged in, the, in this motherhood. Um, and, you know, Annie was a colicky baby. And um, one day my husband called me during yoga class. It was me and Sandra and one other woman, you know, because she couldn't get her to stop crying, you know, <laughs> like I was gonna be able to do something, right? Yeah. <laughs> and Sandra, I remember, I mean, this is something that I've held um, so close to me from since then for the whole time. But, you know, we were talking and they were all saying, tell Jeff, he cannot call you, you know? And, and she said, you know, motherhood is a series of separations. And I, and I, I, I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, I thought I, I've been reading all these books on attachment and, you know, <laughs> I thought it was about being responsive and, um, and, and here I have this this new friend with this, and then all it dawned on me, right? The baby comes and separates from your body, and then when they stop nursing, they separate from your body even more, and then they grow and they don't cuddle with you the same way. And 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 if you do your job, they keep moving away, right? Um, and this, and so I, every week I would drive over to this teeny little yoga studio in the back of this person's house. And there was maybe three of us in the class and Sandra and I would talk about what we were writing and she would tell me, you know, she'd give me the long view on, on mothering. And, um, and honestly, you know, the thing about Sandra is that she is, uh, she is so fiercely supportive of the people in her life. And it's, she's been that way with me, of the other writers, younger writers, older writers. Um, but I see her do it with everyone she believes in. Um, she has an incredible energy that she just um, champions, right? All, all these, the people that she believes in. And it's, it's an example for me in so many ways of uh, what real friendship looks like and service to another writer. Oh, that's very sweet, Kim. Um, yeah, I, rem I remember that now. You know, you, you triggered that memory. I'd forgotten all about that because I just remembered that awful look of desperation and the, you know, the feeling, looking at you and seeing you as though you're being pulled in so many different directions. And I think that's so true. You know, in motherhood, you just don't, you don't have the time to not think. And I think that's, you know, that's one of the things that really eats away at your ability to create. Mm -hmm. You don't have that. It, it, you have to not be able to think in order to come to something or allow something to move through you. Um, and I was just immediately attracted, as so many people are, to Kim because of this just wild, you know, energy and enthusiasm for life in whatever it throws at her. <laughs> There's a lot of bad stuff that gets thrown, but she's al always in this, you know, it, it feels like she's doing these two simultaneous things. She's in combat mode 
and she's in embrace mode and they coexist. And I find that just in, insanely appealing that you know you can be ready to go to battle with one hand and then hold your person with the other hand. And she does this consistently. I think you see it in her work, how fierce her work is and how embracing her work is, but it also challenges you. It makes you rethink that, you know, it catches you on the back foot sometimes. You think, oh, you know, I'm taking too much for granted here. Mm. And she opens you into that moment. I, I just think that's fantastic. The other thing that I feel like has happened over the years with us is that we've been together for the rises and the rising and falling of our writing of like and publishing. And so we both ha had successes and then we both had really dry periods and um, and I th and we meet each other, you know, we at, at different times. And um, I don't know about about anyone else, but it, it's funny how when a friend shows me that part of themselves that is actually most tender, like disappointment, um, it, it, it brings, it has brought us even closer. And I think both of us have trusted each other enough to share those, those writerly disappointments too. And when we're, we're sending out and sending out and nothing's hitting, um, <laughs> right? Exactly, exactly. I mean, really, I mean, we're not talking about a couple of months here. We've been in these barren, Trophy is just you know the trough is just so high on both sides never going to get out of this and you know when you know your friend and your, your friend is this brilliant writer mm -hmm. and everybody should be shouting their name from the rooftops because it's so fantastic what they're doing and it's so unique and it's so relevant and pertinent and powerful and on fire <laughs> and it's not happening you, know, you get all this dreck being published by the <laughs> And you're, well, I'm sorry to the people who are direct writers, you're God's children too. But you know, it's just such a difficult thing just to watch this burning talent and you realize how important things are like friendship and you know, yeah. residencies and places that nurture and these things like podcasts that tell you, yes, you're worthwhile. Because most of the time you're hearing, no. <laughs> Thanks, but no, that doesn't really meet our needs at this time. Exactly. <laughs> It's not you, it's us. But, yes, you're but right, it's you. Uh, the other thing, Maddie, is that, um, uh, wait, what was I just gonna say? Um, oh God, it's gonna, oh yeah, we've taught each other's books a lot throughout the years. And then, so, so that's been another layer, I think, too, of, I, I don't know about how it's been for you, Sandra, but my students, you, you know, Sandra's stories, um, I think it's small change in particular that all have young, children in them right or uh, um and and um children in these in these contexts and settings of war of a famine of of violence um and so so these really powerful stories and then i watch my students um you know fall in love with her work and then that's been another gratifying thing where she kind of stands out her her books will stand out throughout an entire semester where i've taught you know the person who also won the national book award but they're talking about sandra's stories um and so uh it's been it, i don't i don't know what it, what it's like for, it doesn't help me appreciate it more but i guess because i'm teaching your work sandra i i have to read it more deeply yes. i've read it more than once yes. and then i see how it's received by the reader um and so yeah my appreciation grows in that too it's really interesting how that works who you teach <laughs> <laughs> when you make those decisions to go deeper yeah. in the work it really yeah. your, your appreciation grows 
it's kind of like having a, an ongoing book group. Yeah. You just, you know, keep, you know, drawing from that pool again. And what do you think of Kim's new book? And, and I keep going back to night radio so many times. It's just, it resonates. And I'm so looking forward to, you know, because uh, Kim's going to come in to read from Tigers next week in my class. And just hearing from the students who immediately want to run out and buy the book. Well, they can't run out now, but they can <laughs> go to go online and buy the book. And the, 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 the just not just the, the integrity of it, but the relevance. And Kim writes to such an immediacy of the contemporary experience of the young woman. And you just, I just, and I don't get that feedback just from the girls, it's, you know, from the guys as well. Mm. And it's just, and again, you know, the way it's written, there's not a trace. And, you know, a tiny drop of sentiment in what you write, <laughs> and you write so, you know, to these very, very difficult places. And once you start, and of course, poetry, as I'm, you know, I'm sure you're aware, is not students, you know, students don't naturally gravitate towards poetry unless they choose to be poets. But I've seen students just will do, you know, will do that because of your work, will come in and, and they respond very much to Kim as, as writer as well, and they just, love her work so i can't wait for you to come and read from tigers it's gonna be so cool <laughs> well this seems like a good moment for kim to read from tigers for us right <laughs> yeah, let me do that <laughs> transition <laughs> <laughs> perfect and um so I, the, the thing i just say about the book other you know you read the um the sort of you know back copy um i i but the, i i want to contextualize the book a little bit so night radio my first book sort of it, it was a excavation um of a family trauma of the kidnapping and sexual assault of my sister when we were children and my dad was an la cop and um the book very much is situated in los angeles and and underneath those facts you know is this question of of is is the art making that I'm doing in this book? Does it suffice? Can it can it can it hold this, the violence and the loss that actually occurred as a result of this, sort of chaos touching down in our life? Um, and then now Tigers shifts that a bit. And after I had my first child, who who is female, um, all these questions around safety. Uh, and girlhood and um, my role as a mother. And they, they came up with a completely different point of reference. So it wasn't so much about me trying to make meaning in a world where chaos can touch at any time. It was about um, how do you love, uh, how do you love when trauma sort of kicks off this vigilance, you know, this mm -hmm. like uh, guarding the perimeter, you know, wanting mm -hmm. to that that I have discovered is sort of counter to love and also counter to the creative act, right? Because control and vigilance isn't very good, very very good, very conducive for um, creativity or 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 that letting go. I think that needs to happen when you really want to inhabit that wilder place um, inside of you. So all of those, so this similar, similar triggering event, you know, this for, formative childhood experience, but now, um, with a completely different point of reference. Um, so I think the poem that I'll read is, it is, um, toward the end, it's called Tiger. Um, uh, here I go. It's, it's dedicated to my daughter. When the tigers come, 
you might drive and drive, inhaling hits of smoke from the mouths of shoeless men, pulling long moo-moos from garbage cans, rolling your own cigarettes from tobacco tins. When the tigers come, you might crush all your Simon and Garfunkel albums and stop taking showers. You might throw away your fun girl who used to sing at dinner. When the tigers come, you might run naked, believing that if you've rid yourself of every last remnant, they'll have nothing to take from you. Once the tigers have come, everything will begin to look like tiger. The classroom, your dope, the small way you believe you can go to Reed College, your love of whales, the total. I wanna tell you that when the tigers come, meet tiger with tiger. I want you to learn the tiger growl, the tiger smell. I wanna teach you to stalk like a tiger. I wanna make a tiger mask for the back of your head so the tigers won't attack from behind. I wanna tell you that the tigers will become gentle, but the tigers aren't gentle. You can only open your tiny broken life. You can crack open the back door when the rain starts. You can come down into the wild fennel, into this long stretch of time. These days like little pieces, the smell of sage, the way the wind moves through anyone's hair. When the tigers come, you can only meet them as you meet every single morning. You start so early. You look like tiger looks, eyes fixed on each moment. You've always called me back here to the sound of your own singing, your hand pulling me into the yard, back from all the ways I teach you to run from tiger. But tiger is right here all along with tiger breath, tiger whiskers, and up, up close the sound is not a growl. The sound is all animal and tiger can sense us and you're ready. I can see that now. You always have been. Thank you, Kim. Wow. That just uh, whacked me right in the, right in the chest. <laughs> it gets me every time. I have yet to make it through that poem without becoming a puddle. It's beautiful. It's amazing. Yeah, I'm curious. I'm curious. Yeah, this, is, this is what my, I have a daughter who is uh, 21 now. And this is the poem that I send her every year on her birthday. Oh, Sandra. So that, no, since you've written it, obviously. <laughs> I knew you were going to write this poem, Kim. But, no, you know, no, no. Obviously recently, and, you know, she loves this poem. It speaks to her in so many ways. And I think what you do is you, you speak to the things that haven't happened. Mm -hmm. And you speak for the girls for whom it has. Mm. And there's such hope. That's brilliant. Thank you, my friend. Read more. No, no, you, you. I want to hear what from, what, did you bring something to read? I did, but I, you know, when we talked before, we had a little chat about this. I divided into situation and story. So what are we doing? We're going to do those separately. I think you should just do whatever you want. Well, I'll read the whole book then. <laughs> <laughs>
So um, I'm, go I'm going to read two little sections then. Um, this is a novel memoir. It's very different from what I've been doing. Um, Kim mentioned that I, I write short stories and I also write novels um, based in, in tumultuous and turbulent parts of the world um, with a, a narrator or two narrators who, who have to deal with something. Uh, this is very different. It follows the story of my mother uh, who came from Sri Lanka. Um, in the 1940s, she moved from Sri Lanka to what was then Bombay to study and then from Bombay she came to England with my father uh, that was she never saw once she left Bom uh, Sri Lanka she never saw her mother again so you know and then she was also a career woman she was you know a really really good secretary at the time when men held all those positions um, and she wanted that's what she wanted to do and of course uh, all of societal pressure was against her um, and she also had to face a lot of racism when she came to England in the, in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s. So um, it, was, it was an extraordinary struggle for her. She was a very difficult person. We did not get on well together. I had no relationship with her when she died in 2019. But obviously there was something there that was bringing me back to talk about her and think about her. And uh, she was a fundamentalist Christian that also separated us. Um, it was an unbridgeable chasm, um, but I wanted to know, uh, you know, a little bit more about her, which is why I wrote this. So I'm, I, some of the scenes are imagined, um, so I'm writing to her interiority to actually try and understand her. So the first section I'm going to read is from when she's in London in the 50s, and then the second section I will read is from the end of the book. Mm -hmm. so, uh, the, the excerpt is from This Is Family, 1950, London. Eileen wears her new smart navy blue Macintosh, pale blue nylon scarf, elegant crocodile shoes from Austria, her usual quick steps carrying her to the butcher to pick up minced meat for the evening's shepherd pie. Her mother, well, her mother-in-law, shows her this simple recipe and Eileen's delighted to try a traditional English dinner. She smiles to think of C's pleasure. She mentioned that C is her husband. She always referred to him by his initial. Wow. He does prefer his Indian food, but he'll be pleased that she's doing her bit to adapt. Her smile comes to rest on an old woman lurching along, dragging an old pull-along bag. The woman's face is lined. She looks cold and tired. She's probably in pain too, maybe a hip issue. Eileen brightens her smile for the poor dear. The woman's mouth opens as she stares at Eileen's pregnant stomach. Eileen ready to say good evening. What are you grinning at, bloody wog? Ruining the country, you lot. As though the woman has spat at her. The indignation curdles up. Eileen has a job. She's working hard like everyone else. She keeps her bedsit clean and tidy. She uses Purcell to wash the clothes and Ajax to scrub the sink. But she is part of you lot, lumped in with the wogs and the blackies and the darkies and the niggers and the nignogs, the ones with dark skins. Who is the woman in the mirror that other people see? No one could call her black, but is she brown, beige? A nice cream colour, she thinks, but not white. She doesn't want to be English, but she doesn't want people to point at her. There's the darkie. In the mirror, her eyes fill with tears. 
The English don't see what she is, only what she is not. Her straight spine bends a little and she turns to wipe her eyes. She puts her hands over the swollen stomach. Don't worry, baby, I won't let any of this happen to you. How will she prevent it? The child will go to school and children can be cruel. Perhaps they'll be lucky and baby will be light skinned like its mama. After a month, it becomes a habit. Look straight ahead, don't make eye contact. She notices that it's the lower class people who pass comments, sniff loudly as though she is a bad smell, avoid sitting next to her on the bus. The better class of people would never behave that way. She has yet to learn that she is invisible to middle and upper middle classes. If they do notice her, she's some pretty little foreigner on her way to clean offices or serve tea. She realizes she's acquired experience. She can help the rest of the family when they arrive and they come one after the other, tumbling into the winter months, Paddy and Eric and Synth a few weeks apart. Eileen goes with C to meet each of them at Tilbury Docks and becomes adept at coralling porters. It was clever of her mother-in-law to have C and her arrive first instead of being the family outsider. Eileen is able to welcome the others and show them around the neighborhood. The others are grateful, delighted to have her in the family. It gives her a boost and distracts her from the intermittent twinges and stomach jumps of knowing she will never return to Ceylon. This is the end of the story. I was about to return to America. I leaned over your bed and held your hand. You held mine in a firm grip. I said, you're a good mum." I couldn't say anything else. I retrieved my hand and left. Three months later, my brother told me you died in your sleep the way you wanted to go. I felt relief that the long Alzheimer's suffering was past, the screaming to God to take you, please, please, please. I've written this in 2020 under lockdown, a different world from the one you knew, the one you left. You would have been convinced that this terrible pandemic is the last plague. We struggle to work, to stay safe, to keep our families together. We wear masks or not. We go for tests or not. We are sick. We heal. A number of us, many of us die. The infection rate rises daily. Inside, I'm thinking of you walking along the beach in Goa, probably stopping to pick up a little sea-washed shell. We share the same way of beach walking, gazing out over the sea, stopping to stare at clumps of seaweed, scurrying crabs, the small birds that follow the tide's rhythm along the shore. I miss what we were not, if that is a kind of missing. There was something lovely that didn't happen, that we couldn't have spoken about. But it was always interrupted, your fear, the violence in your past, the violence that was always present in the family, the clinging to a consuming religion that excluded anything or perhaps protected you from being further violated. It has occurred to me that my damaged hand is beautiful. I took a picture with my cell phone. It's imperfect, which seems appropriate, but the nails are oval, something I've never had until now. I can't bite my nails because the wrist can't rotate properly. At the bottom, the scars from the pins are just visible. Those are lovely too. A cut at the base of the thumb from carelessly held secateurs while I was deadheading the buddlia. The skin is old and there is gloss on the back of the hand that indicates the chronic local pain syndrome. What a hand. It can make a fist, pick up and hold things, help to tie shoelaces, chop, slice, sift, mix. It can, with the proper alignment, use a door handle, open the fridge. It can make a bed, although it's useless at tucking in sheets. It can fold laundry, take out the rubbish, wheel the bins to the curb. It's recovered almost 100% of sensation so that when I touch my skin, it doesn't feel like I'm touching sand. 
It can't lift anything heavy. It can't make extravagant gestures that it used to, although it does an excellent queen wave. It's typed a lot of this book, despite the doctor's orders. The ultimate grief of being alone in the body with the spasms of disappointment, frustration, pain. No one else can know what I feel unless I can somehow transmit that through touch, the message, I am here. In 2019 at the nursing home, both of my hands, nails chewed down, were busy knotting themselves inside my pockets. If I'd had this hand then, I would have given it into yours and it would have connected to you. Somehow you would have known it was painful, tender, not easily manipulated. You would have forgiven this hand for what it did in pushing you away. You would have held it firmly as you tried to do throughout your life to keep me safe. You would have traced the scars and knots knowing that I did in my way try and that this story, the version that you knew and the one that I have imagined tells me that all along you didn't let go, even if I thought you did. That too is a coming home. You were a good mum. <laughs> Thank you, Sandra. Thank you. Kim needs a moment here, so I'll okay. all time. <laughs> um, I think the momentum of that excerpt was just incredible. It felt like I was on a train just barreling along with you. Um, and I really heard the resonance between your work and Kim's work there as well. Um, so Kim, if you're ready, can I bring you back in and let you guys discuss? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Sandra, um, thank you for reading that. I hadn't read the ending. You know what, you've sent me the first maybe 50 pages, but um, the ending is incredible. Thank you. Uh, were, were you I, this is my question. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> were, were, you, were you surprised about where it, where you went, where you arrived? I think I kind of guessed where it was going. It's like, I didn't know exactly. Yeah. But once I broke my wrist and I had the chronic local pain syndrome, I knew there was a reason. Yeah. And it's not like I thought, oh, it's fortuitous. It was meant to be. It's just, oh, crap. I'm writing this really difficult thing that I don't know the way into. And now I have an injury and I thought, oh, that's, yes, of course, I should have an injury for this. So it just slowed everything down. I couldn't type fast. I had to stay with these difficult moments and, you know, hunt and peck my way through with one hand. And, and you try to make things work with the other hand and sometimes it would go wrong. And I'd look up and they'd just be gibberish across the page. And I'd have to go back and I thought, this is so parallel. This is, just makes all the sense in the world, right? Yes. And then you realize that's, the, that's it. Um, this is the story, what's happening, right? How, how like, actually the thing that's, ha the, the mechanism of how you're making it. Yeah, is what it is, is the is the entry is the way in is the way to it, it really is. It really was meta writing for me. Yeah, I've never experienced before. I had to examine the way it was being assembled. So but let me let me throw this back to you, because um, I, I, I was so curious about the way Tigers was written because it's, you know, obviously it's not right night radio and there's, you know, there are galaxies you've traveled in between to get to this point but I was just I was just enthralled by it it leapt off the page it wasn't there was it, you know even the contemplated pieces felt so charged mm. did, did you feel that when you were writing it mm. you know what's interesting is that I think 
when I finished night radio, I was feeling um, that I had ended, you know, my period of sort of fragmented, elliptical, image-driven poems. Yeah. Like I was, I was, um, I, I'm not saying like, I, I, I think, I'm not saying that I was sort of um, a master of that form of like the sort of lyric fragmented elliptical circling back, you know, but I, I grew, and I think that form was really important for night radio for, for a book that is excavating a trauma that me, that, um, you know, sends, sends sort of the narrative in, in, mm. into all these pieces, you know, mm -hmm. and so therefore mm -hmm. the, the, the form that felt right for night radio was taking those pieces and assembling them. But I, I so when it finished, I, I was yearning for something more, um, hearty or something, you know, yeah. I, I, you know, I had been experimenting with, um, I had been writing more essays. I had already kind of one been been spending more time uh, writing maybe more lyric essays or exploring nonfiction. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I would say, you know, that I didn't um, I didn't uh, feel like I wouldn't necessarily characterize it as like, yeah, I was writing it and I felt the charge. You know, when I I, I think what I was feeling was that. I had been stretching out of this um, this reliance on the image to sort of just do all the evocation, right? And I and I and I was looking at some of my favorite writers and I, like at, at, at James Baldwin or Maxine mm -hmm. Hunkingston or even my beloved Dorothy Barisi, and I'm like, no, they they say things, you know? <laughs> they, <laughs> they they not only evoke. Yeah. but they but then they but then they um interrogate and yeah. um and so i i think that one of the things that uh, uh one of the ways that i wanted to stretch as a writer when i set out to write tigers was you know i i use dialogue in this in this right a lot they're mostly prose poems yeah. you know there's that long sequence sequence of mother ghost poems that started off really as a lyric essay and i think it does live between genres you know you could call it mm. flash flash nonfiction, or you could call it prose poem it lives there somewhere at the border but i i was really interested in the way <clears throat> that um place like still still the poetic idea of the turn right mm -hmm. of starting a line of thinking and then leaping to something else mm -hmm. and kind of and then weaving in the dialogue um uh but then but then doing that with a sort of speed or a compression yes. that that you yeah. know that yeah. and like you say i def when i read them now aloud at readings some of them are definitely more reflective and move a little bit more slowly but then there, there does seem to be in, in, in like the felons and some of the other ones where um, I'm trying to do all these new things, uh, but I'm trying to do it with a certain um, swiftness, I think. And yeah. maybe at least successful ones that gets away from me. They're too swift. I don't know. I, th I think it's, uh, that's what it is. It's the direct address, I think. And, it, and that's just such a, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at marriage fragments. Mm. you know and it's just wow you know it just it I think it, the 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 courage to go there and not to dress it up 
Mm. to actually just like take the dressing off and go, here it is, here's, yeah. here's the living organ that I've mangled for you. Right, that's another way to, that's another way to, I think, conceptualize, like what I was talking about, ev evocative imagery, mm. I, uh, you're talking about direct, like the mm. directness, a uh, like a language that isn't necessarily completely elevated or, um, uh, uh, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like mm. uh, I, I was reading something that someone had written about um, civilian and they were talking about the sort of plain language which obviously I still care very much about language <laughs> I don't yeah, mean to yeah. no. totally plain but there is a way that the yeah the language is uh, literal in a lot of it and I'm trying I'm working in that realm um, and like you're saying I'm saying it like directly um, maybe yeah no, this is I and and civilian is the one that we will be reading uh, before you get there uh, uh, to class. And I just found I couldn't I couldn't stop I couldn't stop reading it once I started. There was there was um, a propulsive element to it, and, and I don't when I when when we talk about you know the, these this language of metaphor and simile and you know writing a slant, writing a skew, and all that stuff that we you know we're told to do. And in fiction too, you know, don't tell your reader directly this. And I think that's ball. I think that's absolute ball. You know, people want to know. And I think if, if you go, you know, instead of saying, well, you know, you'll make the, you'll make the connection. You know, well, what about if you don't want to make the connection, you're looking for something else. You want something that addresses something that's bleeding inside of you. You know, you don't have the, why should you have to work around all these things? And I'm not saying those things are wrong. But when you have something direct that speaks directly to you, it, it, it has such an impact. It has the impact of integrity, mm. which is, I think, you know, just that's just such a love letter to your reader mm. saying that, you know, I trust you and here it is. This is what yeah. it is. But it's hard to write. <laughs> It's Don't you think? I mean, as I, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. I feel like as I've grown as a writer, I actually I, I can get to. I I think I relied on ev ev evocativeness or you know letting that image sort of hang there um, and do do all the work or this wonderful gorgeous list of words or you know I, I, another way to think of it is I I, I relied on atmosphere a lot mm. the way that. Like you, I feel like when you walk into night radio, you, you feel the, you really feel the place. The atmospheric, yeah. yeah. And like, and I, and I, and I mean, all, writing is that way and it's wonderful, but then there is this thing about, um, you know, like, it's like when James Baldwin writes in notes of a native son when, about his father dying and he says, you know, he, he weaves his way, you know, into, into this moment so masterfully. And he said, and then I realized that this bitterness was now mine, right? Like, I mean, he, he is saying something so, um, I, to be able to write your way to know, to know that, to have the self-knowledge to know that this bitterness his father carried his whole life. And now that his father has died, he, he is, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah, it seems, I think it's deceptively uh, simple, right? When we encounter it. Um, but I also, I, th I think it's, it takes such courage on the part of the writer 
to do that knowing you know because you're being seen right you're being watched and you're being seen to do that so it's not just his moment of arrival it's everybody you know it's the thousands of people who are watching through the window who see (laughs) him do that right and they're just kind of aghast as well and you get to share that moment together and I think that mutual arrival is what you strive for you want everyone to you know to come to that moment and and I so agree with the idea of using language that can kind of be elliptical um but is still very beautiful and I mean I'm drawn I'm drawn that way too but I think there's been a conscious decision like you to step aside from that and to write very differently um and that take you know because I look back at the short stories and I, I do some similar things to you and think oh you know wow the, 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 <laughs> the pink stones yes yeah in, right in change yeah the, the the I mean and I think that it functions beautifully right and I mean it's an incredible image it's an image that is haunting in that in that story but yeah it's 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 a different way of uh, making meaning right exactly and it's challenging because I think you know you're you're doing something you know very very similar is this is what I need to do and then you think okay there's the other part will it get published <laughs> right because you know how the other thing works right, right? Exactly. so you can make that thing I, I went through a series of years where I was just churning out short stories and and getting them up I you know I was very lucky but I knew how that thing worked and I got very suspicious <laughs> <laughs> this is not what should be happening this no. should be a journey of discovery yeah. for me too right yes exactly so then, you, know, you have to sing your own world into being you have to walk into the, the dead white or dead black landscape and know that there's nothing there and that's where you write from and it feels sometimes when you <clears throat> have something that works like this facility with language that you have you've already got some of the props there that's right and so when you take those props away then it becomes really interesting it does <laughs> <laughs> so have you been have you been having some of those feelings with the um novel memoir about the exposure or I mean I I, maybe not yet because it it'll have to be out in the world perhaps when you have some of that I don't know how how have you been feeling about it um it's been really weird because um this is a you know it's it has obviously there's it's the novelistic side of it but there's a lot of memoir in there and there are some things that I have to admit to and talk about because not because I want to dig up everybody's filthy past but because it's relevant to my discussion of Eileen, of, of my mother. Yes. So I've been pretty rigorous about trying to keep things focused on her. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, I'm part of that. I'm, I'm, you know, a large part of that journey. So having beta readers who know me has been very difficult because they'll write, well, I didn't know this thing about you. And I, no, I think I did, but that's not why I wrote it. That's not the reason I write it. So that it can be, it can be double-edged. Mm-hmm. It can be, this is necessary. And then you, you do feel stark naked, mm-hmm. um, but then you also have to trust that your reader will see that that's in context with everything else. So, you know, very much like um, you talk about, you know, the, um, the attack on your sister. Yeah. And uh, it doesn't go away, but it accretes different layers and becomes, you know, this carbuncle on your shoulder or your side that you know is part of you forever but then there's this other way of you know showing yourself to the world as it were absolutely 
Um, I think it, what you're saying about um, why, why are we, wh why, why this unveiling, why mm -hmm. this excavation of this other person in the family, right? Is it, is it, is it for uh, those reasons that you're saying of that this is about uh, the, the context of this story that's very important to you about who your mother was, right? Mm -hmm. And how that is part of the story of who, who you are. Um, yeah. That those are the reasons why you, yes. you know, and that, and, and maybe that's the, um, the thing that feels a, a little bit of like a letdown when, when our readers don't understand. It's not like we get off, I, we're not the kind of people that get off on self-exposure, right? It's <laughs> <laughs> not why you're going to writing, generally. So I had my, one of my oldest friends, she, she was reading Tigers and she texted me and was like, it's so personal. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and she's a very she's more of reserved than I am and that th you know and it's I didn't mean for it to be so personal but I do it was it's interesting what you're saying about tigers is that I have been feeling like when the book came out in November and like friends at the preschool ordered it nobody's available for play dates you know <laughs> what is that <laughs> But I think you know you 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 are are looking at. Um, I, I I love the way that you look at uh, female identity. Uh, and it, it sort of has these 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 shades to it of of what it's not mm. as much as what it is. And I wanted actually I I was thinking about this just before the podcast started was that you know you choose Tiger for very obvious reasons. You know it's ferocious, it's dangerous, and it's also beautiful. <laughs> But it's also this issue of being seen and not seen. You know, you put tiger in the jungle and you, yeah. you don't know where it is. Yeah. It's only when it comes out, whether it's about to attack or you catch it off guard, then you can see it. So this idea of female identity being seen and not seen, I mean, what, what do you, was that conscious for you? When it, you it, wasn't, it wasn't as conscious, but it, what it does make me think of is how <laughs> as much as I'm concerned with female identification, I'm interested in masculinity and I always have been. And I, you know, I, so I think that the, these two identities, um, cause I think ultimately I think of myself as a more masculine kind mm -hmm. of person. Um, and, uh, uh, I've, and, and there's that piece of tigers of the symbol that is very much about toughness and resilience mm -hmm. and for ferocity and, um, uh, 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 but I'm, I think I'm questioning that, right? Uh, and I'm, uh, um, in terms of like, I both value it and I both see how it um, prevents, and I see how crucial tenderness is to, to loving and, and, and how, just like we were saying when we were talking about our friendship, how yeah. much revealing fragility allows for connection. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, and also, and also, I think it, I think that so important that idea of having fragility as the point of connection, of you know, as we've done, you know, watched each other crash and burn, and and been there for each other, which I'm so grateful for. But it also inspires the city. That you does. absolutely, which is, which is so tiger. I, I mean, because. <laughs> So tiger. Oh, I just see, and this is why we're friends. I mean, your tiny, <laughs> your email is tiny huntress. You know, 
from one tiger to another. <laughs> that was actually given to me by a friend. <laughs> yes, it's way, way old. This is back in the 90s, must have been, when um, email first came out. <laughs> and I, everybody was choosing a name and I didn't, I, I don't know what to do. And I was working with this woman. She said, no, this is, this is who you are. Ah, yeah. I love it. You were <laughs> So I but I think that. actually, how many times do you feel like I'm like you get the you know 75th rejection and you're like fuck this I'm giving up and then you're like no fuck that I'm gonna keep going. <laughs> it's just it's it's more or less like yeah it's just that and it's just I doesn't matter what you don't accept or don't do this is what I'm doing. Yeah, and that's you need that. I mean, as, as much as you get crushed, and you do get crushed all the time. You know, I have a couple of uh, writer groups I'm meeting with one this evening, um, and they're just beginning to send work out, and and I feel so tender towards them because they, you know, they send out to one magazine at a time or to two magazines if they're feeling daring. And I was like, no, you've got to send out fifty <laughs> because about forty of them are going to say no. You know, yeah. Did I ever tell you the story of one of my professors? who we were working on a literary mag magazine project and this is someone I really respected and revered and we were supposed to pull up the literary magazine submittable page but she accidentally pulled up her submittable page oh, <laughs> and it was just like rejection rejection <laughs> just like all of our page like I think unless you're yeah. you know, Jericho Brown or something I, I, don't, I don't know I'm sorry Jericho your page probably has its own but uh like uh you know and I I mean, it was probably the most instructive thing that has ever happened to me in a classroom to see yeah. this person that I revered who has published dozens of books, but that's what her submittable page looks yeah. like, yeah. filled with red, you know? And, you, and, and I think it, that's, that's the other thing is that the gatekeeper that you go through is one person. That's right. And one person's ideas, you know, sitting on the other side of the desk now, because I, I edit, I, I read uh, submissions for Nimrod, and so I'm just thinking, I'm so conscious of that. Yes. That I'm that one person it goes through. I mean, obviously they'll, if I recommend it for, you know, maybe a partial rewrite or something like that, then it will go through other people. But generally speaking, if I say no, generally that's going to be it. And I feel just that weight <laughs> of my own rejection <laughs> sitting on my shoulders. But yeah, and it's, it's just, a, a, that's such an important thing that you, you bring up because it's teaching or learning and teaching our students as we do that you know it's not just oh rejection is part of writing rejection is essential yes. to what you do you yeah. need to have that in order to dig to those dark places <laughs> right yeah yeah. Because, uh, yeah otherwise you wouldn't be able to do half the stuff that you do and you know there's those moments when you do get um when you do get uh, that connection or that publication is is that vindication moment. It is. Someone yeah. shows your vision or sees what you see or believes. Yeah, and also you can say, well, F everybody else. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you lost out. <laughs> so wait, Sandra, I want you to talk about your new, maybe we could talk about our new projects. Before yeah, let's, tell let's us, do tell that. Yeah, let's do that. Anything so, new you're working on. <laughs> sure, sure. Do you want to go first? No, no, you go. <laughs> okay, all right. So I'm writing, oh dear, another new uh, project for me, a post-apocalyptic novel set in um, Santa Monica and Venice. And basically I imagined that the election was overturned mm -hmm. and that as a result of it, there was this massive uprising, um, uh, just, you know, a lot of destruction and 
loads and loads of people of color just marched into Beverly Hills and Westwood and all these rich places around Los Angeles and squatted, just moved into houses and squatted. So the government, not knowing what to do, you know, started trying to get people, winkle people out and it didn't work. And so eventually um, they, uh, they get all the white people out, the homeowners out, they bust or you know, fly helicopter people out and then they bomb everything. So it's just this, you know, this is what's left of Santa Monica and Venice. So I've got these little characters who managed to survive, who are trying to make their way. They've also got, the government's also sort of formed this idea of um, uh, reprogramming. So they're finding all these people of color who've got desperate lives, who've got nothing to live for, and they say, we're gonna reprogram you and you could, you could be part of this elite core. And what they don't tell them is that they get reprogrammed to join uh, an elite militia that go out into Beverly Hills and Westwood and, you know, literally kill people. So they're sending brown people to kill brown people is basically it. So it's got, um, it's definitely not Dune, shall we say, <laughs> but it's, it's teach it again. It's this opportunity to, you know, what we've been talking about of just taking away all the infrastructure that you're used to. Mm -hmm. and having to write literally from the ground. So all the time they're on broken concrete mm -hmm. or, you know, just they're on broken metal or that, you know, they're in danger of being attacked by enhanced cats. <laughs> That's a different part of it. <laughs> so, but, you know, it's, it's just this idea of who are you ultimately when you get down to that? You know, who, who you've been told that you are versus who you are in this, in this situation. That's really what's driving this. I'm so excited. <laughs> you told me about that the first time. I was like, "Oh my gosh!" I'm so, you, you just pumped out Burger Queen, and now you've got this. I mean, <laughs> pandemic has been productive for you. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it has actually. Yeah. Uh, how about you? What do you work? So with? yeah, the same same here. So la my my project I'm so excited about last fall. Um, Wait, yeah, last fall, I found the letters or I re I dug up the letters that I had written between one of my early poetry mentors, a woman named Lee McCarthy, who lived, who I, when I knew her, she lived in Bakersfield. And um, I found these letters and all of a sudden I, I was like, holy shit. Like I, I, when she sent them to me in my twenties, there was no way I could recognize what she was trying to tell me. Like mm. the letters were filled with her disappointment, you know, that, that she, she, at least on, upon first reading, you know, that she, she, she was saying, you know, that uh, her, her friend wrote to her and they, they said that they read a poem at dinner and what a, what a way to have her be there, but, you know, to have her at dinner, but not have to invite her over. <laughs> right? And so then when I went back to the story of like, well, who, who was Lee McCarthy, this amazing, eccentric, beautiful poet from Bakersfield? Yeah. And Lee's story begins in the, the base of the Smoky Mountains when she was in her 20s living with a struggling writer named Cormac McCarthy. Yeah. And they had their first child together. And Cormac asked her to get a day job in addition to carry, taking care of the child in the home. And Lee said, fuck you, and left. And she spent 30 years um, she made her way out west to, to Central California, and she didn't publish her first book of poems until she was 53. All and, right. Um, uh, but, but this is the way that the narrative has changed. So now I'm writing this long piece of creative nonfiction about Lee's life, about mothering, about parenting, about, about disappointment. But the, the, the thing that I've discovered, you know, is that at first it was this sort of reckoning with failure or with life turning out not how you thought it was going to turn out. Mm -hmm. And then I realized exactly what you reacted to, Sandra. She published her foot, first book. At, she published a book at 53 and went on to publish.
published three books and this is through uh poverty you know like learning how to cook soup from scraps mm -hmm. you know ostracization feeling on the outside of every community she was in and then becoming this sort of um you know this this figure um in, in our local community um and and i realized that so so the the project is really i'm i'm redefining what it means to be successful mm -hmm. i'm looking at community i'm looking at um the creative act as holy in and of itself um mm -hmm. right and 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 it's forcing me to reconsider canonization and book sales and recognition right as sure. as markers of success so um it's just so exciting to write wow. about it Kim in conversation with Lee. <laughs> I want to be there for that one. It's, I'm just very excited. You told me a little bit about this and I'm just, yes, <laughs> it's going to be so fab. I'm so excited. Yeah, I'm, I'm ready to pre hit the pre-order button on both of these buttons. <laughs> <laughs> um, Kim and Sandra, thank you so much. This was a freaking awesome conversation. I was about to curse because I'm so enthusiastic, but <laughs> I refrained. Um, it was so generous. And I think um, both of you talking about rejection and being in those troughs of where you just can't see the future of your writing career. I think that's so important because, you know, when we do these kind of publicity things, we, we only want to show the good side of writing and we only want to show the glitz and the glamour and the nice blurbs. And there's so much work and waiting and patience that goes into it. And that's important to talk about. And it's also important to talk about the friends that are going to pull you out of those troughs. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm really, I feel really grateful that I got to hear about your friendship and how meaningful that it's been in both of your careers. So thank you for sharing that with our listeners. And thank you for inviting me, Kim, and generously sharing the stage. That was really lovely. It's been, it's been so wonderful. Thank you, Sandra. I enjoy you. Thank you, Maddie. And thank you, Maddie. You're so welcome. It's been a pleasure. Um, is there anything else we didn't mention that you'd like to say or, um, you know, places that our listeners could find you if they wanted to learn more about your work? I'll put this in um, chat. Oops. Um, I have, you can find me at kimyoungpoetry.com. All right. And Sandra's website is sandra-hunter.com. All right. Well, that's it for today. Uh, again, Kim and Sandra, thank you for being here. The book we were talking about is Tigers, but Kim and Sandra have lots of other books that are great that you should read as well and keep an eye out for their new projects coming soon. All right. Thanks everybody for listening and we'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.